Hi there. You're listening to Capricorn Rising Inc., the podcast exploring the intersection of intuition and business. I'm your host, Alex Kaola. I'm an intuitive executive and business coach. On this show, we talk to professional intuitives and those who integrate their intuition into traditional corporate roles about the special sauce that makes each one of us successful. We cover topics like manifesting your dream job, discovering your zone of genius, creating meaningful business branding, and of course, the astrology and human design underneath it all. P.S. Capricorn Rising Inc. is the podcast formerly known as Intuition Calling and the business formerly known as High Priestess of Brooklyn. Hey, if Kylie Jenner can rename her child after 16 months, let's normalize rebranding our business too. Stay in touch with us at Capricorn Rising Inc. on social media and our website. And remember, a Capricorn Rising Tide lifts all boats. Let's start the show. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Capricorn Rising Inc., the podcast that seeks to find the intersection and balance between intuition and business. I'm your host, Alex Kaola, and today we have my good friend, Brittany Rock, on the line. She and I worked together, actually, at um, a company that used to be called Orify Brands that oversaw multiple different hospitality companies within it. And we got along like a house on fire. She and I were tasked with helping each one of the brands that we worked with to build out their teams. And then Brittany got promoted to a director of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging role in I think June or July of 2020. So remember the heightened time, um, kind of the time that uh, those roles were really on the rise and becoming more and more integrated into organizations. And so we start out and talk a little bit, of course, about human design, but also sort of like a state of the union of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging roles, D-E-I-B. And I think it'll be really interesting for everyone to hear that because you probably remember around that time, just it being so hot, like it was such a hot button issue, a hot button time, you know, what are companies doing to support, um, diversity within their organizations. And she really explains why sometimes those facilitators really, in those roles are not set up for success and why sometimes companies aren't totally ready to do the work um, that's required to support those initiatives. So it's very interesting. She also comes from a talent background, as do I, and so now she's back in a talent role and really thinks about them being blended. You know, talent is, we, we agree on this, is one of the best roles that you can subversively make an influence in an organization's diversity um, by simply hiring people who are diverse. Um, Hiring a diverse um, employee population and then figuring out how to support them internally once they get on board is what makes a culture expand. And it's less about cultural fit, meaning which can sometimes mean that 
we want to hire people that are already like what the organization is. And if the organization is not diverse, then eventually you just have a (laughs) really, you know, I'll just put it in, in no uncertain terms, really white organization. Right. So cultural, um, like fit should be replaced with cultural match or even cultural ad because, and we talk about this, you should really be hiring for the core values of the organization, not what somebody looks like, what school they went to and what background they have and how hiring people from lots of different areas, um, even different roles, different industries can really expand what that looks like within an organization. So this, this conversation is really interesting on so many different levels. It's very rich and hearing from Brittany who sits in that executive recruiter role and kind of what she sees on the inside of organizations is going to be really helpful, not only for people who are looking for jobs right now, but for people who are recruiters who do own that talent function and maybe within an organization or as a recruiter. When I was a recruiter in 2011, 2010, I guess, is when I started to be a recruiter. And then I continued from there. But when I was an executive recruiter or, you know, worked at an agency, it was it was pretty big. Like they would recruit from colleges and stuff, but it wasn't like now I think the industry has completely blown up. It's huge. And so I know a lot of people listening are in a talent role in some capacity or touch that even in HR. Um, so we, Brittany is a great resource for you who are in that role. Um, and also just to be thinking about this as an executive, a CEO, an entrepreneur who is hiring out a team, you know, how do you do that in the most equitable way? And she has really great advice for all all of, uh, all of those personas, um, and all of us really. I mean, I think everybody can get something out of this conversation. Um, so really focusing on, um, what makes a great hire, too. And so if you're thinking about it on the reverse, you know, what does an executive recruiter like Brittany look for? A hint, it's not the fact that you went to an Ivy League school. And we have a little anecdote joke about that. Um, I had a very, let's just say, terrible boss (laughs) for a short amount of time that really wanted me to hire that way, like based on, you know, what school somebody had gone to. And that isn't in and of itself, I mean, I guess it is discriminatory um, in that it cuts out a lot of the population, but it also just doesn't preclude you being a great hire. I mean, that's not a pre, it's not a prerequisite that has ever really determine somebody's success in an organization unless it's a boys club, unless people won't speak to people internally, unless they did go to an Ivy league school. And in that case, then it is a discriminatory organization. So it's just not a great sign. Um, and I think, you know, we talk about also the Pluto and Scorpio generation, which are the millennials who have really seen and been witness to and maybe even had a hand in dismantling what some of these larger institutions that we've really um, adhered to as a society like college and banks and, you know, all sorts of different um, 
I guess, pieces of society that are just basically crumbling in our presence. Um, and kind of what that means for the next generation and what that means for generations, um, before as well. And just sort of like this melting pot of like, "Mm, it's the death it's down to brass tacks and how do we rebuild it? And also, you know, how we think about getting, um, inspiration from generations that come after us. And so we don't only need to look at mentors who are older than us and have more experience, but we can also seek inspiration and get guidance from, you know, Gen Z or generations that come after for the value that they bring because we're all wired really differently at the core and that's all valuable. So we go in so many different directions in this conversation, but it's all, like I said, incredibly valuable. Um, I will link Brittany's information in the show notes, but she is so excited to connect with people who are looking for this information. You can find her on Instagram at Brittany X rock that's spelled B R I T T N E E X R O C K. Sometimes she goes by B rock as well. And yes, that is her real name. And so at the end, we actually talk a little bit about her platform and kind of what's next for her, which is super exciting. And, um, I know you'll be seeing a lot more of her from here on out. I just really love my people so much. And I want me to not be the only one who gets to have conversations with them. So, you know, we bring, uh, you know, people like Brittany and other intuitive leaders like onto the platform in order to really show what's possible and expand everybody's network. And so, you know, if these conversations feel valuable to you and you're getting something out of them, please feel free to share with somebody who will benefit from this information as well. And, And also rate and review the podcast. It helps so much as we grow and we're really just so excited to continue to bring great conversations to you for learning and development and, you know, career and purpose led transformation. So we'll continue to do that and enjoy the conversation. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, so you gave me your your birth information and I looked up your human design chart and I'm like kind of pumped to to t- tell you about it because we've what? never talked about human design specifically. We've only talked about astrology, right? Right. So human design is this system that incorporates astrology and I Ching and Kabbalah and science. So it's like part science, part spiritual, but it essentially like takes astrology one step further and kind of gives you this operational system for how you're going to feel most aligned moving through the world. So it gives you like little pieces of strategy and little, um, it's not little actually it's, it, it, it can get as deep and as like strategic as you want to, but It starts with something called an energy type and your energy type is a projector. It's 20% of the population and you do best when you are in a system-wide 
operational, almost like director position because you can see how things like work together and the whole of um, how things could be more efficient. And you also need to be invited to share your knowledge and your gifts and your experiences. And that's because people aren't always ready to hear what you've observed. <laughs> I know you're like, oh, wow. okay. I'm like, I'm bursting out at the seams here. Like, <laughs> I I had a feeling you were a projector and I'm like, we worked together and we worked really well together. Manifestors and projectors work really well together because like, you're always sort of invited with me to like share your opinion. Or I often asked you like, wait, what do you think about this or that or the other thing? And you're like, well, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up. <laughs> I have been thinking and we're doing it all wrong. Like you've always been like that. So this is just, it's, so the strategy is waiting for the invitation, which can be difficult because you're getting all this information and all these observations. And then it feels like, wait, I have to wait till people are ready. But there's a lot of different ways to work with that. But I'll just, I'll, I'll shut up and tell me how that's resonating. No, I, no, I, that's so in alignment (laughs) with like who I am. I think like as a person, but then also like more so like professionally, Um, I'm naturally like an observer. Like I like to watch things. I like to understand things, understand the system, understand people, um, understand how things work. Um, I like to give a perspective of like, not just what it is I'm looking for, but I want to hear other people's perspectives too. Like, even if I don't necessarily agree, I think it's important for me to hear sort of like the full spectrum of what's happening taking that all in and I could literally be sitting on ideas from what everyone is saying and someone having to sort of usher me in saying, well, what do you think about that, Brittany? What do you think about this? Like, (laughs) um, so that's very much in alignment to sort of like how I've progressed throughout my career, specifically in talent as well. Like just sort of gathering all of those things and really sort of ushering in new ideas for our company, uh, specifically in, in the talent realm. So Yeah. I, I feel like sitting with you in meetings, it often felt like not that you were holding back, but you were waiting for all the information to be presented, which is very Aquarian too, because you're an Aquarius also. <laughs> so like, so it, it takes a minute to realize <laughs> like that, like it's, she'll, she will like chime in. I, I think a lot of it, it my creative energy is very much like, I know what needs to happen. I'm just like, are people ready for it to happen? Like, <laughs> so like, I've, I've, I think about that in a, in a number of ways throughout my career. Like, even when I was doing DE&I work for an organization, right? Like, the world suddenly kind of like awoke to racism and all, you know, discrimination and things of that nature. And me wanting to always lead something like that within an organization, even before sort of the world awoke to it in 2020, I knew the importance of diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, um, but it necessarily wasn't a top priority for a lot of the companies that I worked for, especially in the talent, respective to talent. Um, And so 
being able to like transition into that role, um, I knew exactly what needed to happen. But like many DEI practitioners, it was kind of like, is the organization ready to for this kind of work to happen? And I think that, you know, became a lot of the strategy and a lot of the hardships that DEI practitioners had to overcome, right? Because you could want it, we talked about this before, like being performative versus actually doing the action, right? Like, <laughs> is this something that we're doing because we actually are fully brought in and care about this? Or do we want to sort of, is this how we want to present to, to the world externally? And I used to always say um, in doing DEI work, it's like the external stuff, okay, but a lot of the DEI work needs to be done internally for an organization. I think like the first thing people were thinking about was who can I donate to? Who can I, you know, give money to, which is great. <laughs> but a lot of the inequities and a lot of the discrimination policies are actually happening within the organization. You might want to look at that before you think about sort of helping externally, right? Because there are people who are living in your organization who are committed to doing the work but don't necessarily feel like they belong in it, don't necessarily feel like they've had equal opportunities. That is the kind of stuff that you need to focus on. And it's actually the hardest stuff that you have to focus on, which is why people really weren't ready to kind of do that work. What that it's such a good point. And it's so interesting how waiting for the invitation, you basically waited, you kept because we worked together and then I no longer worked for the organization and you got the promotion into the DEI position. And that was effectively your invitation, right? That you waited for because you were like, this is something we need. This is something we need. We did it in like little bits and pieces, but we didn't, we couldn't really mm -hmm. affect change. You couldn't because it wasn't bought in internally. And it was like, how right. do we like quick fix it? So you got the invitation, right? But how do you determine if an organization is re actually ready to do DE&I work? And let's just uh, define that for anybody listening who isn't sure. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. How do you determine if someone's ready versus per performatively ready? Sure. Um, that's a great question. Um, I think that, you know, Diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, it's not a, cup, a copy and paste format for organizations. And so a lot of people are sort of pulling, well, this organization's doing this, this organization's doing that. And it's not the foundation of DEI work. Um, I think an organization needs to understand and look at where they're at. Um, and that's through like actual data that you may have on file. It's from actually hearing from the people within your organization and that within itself is such a process because if someone has been, you know, not having a great experience within your organization, they might not necessarily feel psychologically safe to even enter these kinds of conversations, right? Because typically the environment hasn't been set up to do so. So I think it's about one, really creating sort of these psychological safe environments for people to even express what it is that they've been going through, one, and I always said, you know, I think it's such a missed opportunity when, you know, we get things like um, employee resource groups together or these, you know, town halls where I've heard people literally like spill their heart and like 
really sort of tell their their pain about working in certain companies and then nothing is done about it, right? It's like, and so like having people, you know, come into these settings and these groups to really sort of really tell their experience in an authentic and raw way and then it being like left alone, right? Like there has to be some sort of follow-up or action or some plan to be able to put in place um, and hearing everyone's um, experience and hearing everyone's, you know, cry and hearing everyone's challenge or barrier. There has to be a plan of action after that. I can't tell you how many times I've been in an organization where they're like, yeah, we want to all come together and want to hear what it is that you're being, you've been going through, but yet there's no action plan after that. Um, so, uh, that, that's some of the, the work that I think also, and I also think, you know, I think, you know, the leaders of organizations have to truly want to do this kind of work. I think a lot of times why a lot of DEI practitioners have felt so burnt out and felt like they're they're not accomplishing what they need to is because they're the only ones that have it on their back. <laughs> Diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, it is not a DEI practitioner task. It is an organizational task. And so while there might be a person leading it, like the enti- it's the entire organization's responsibility. That's from the CEO all the way down to, you know, anyone who may be working in sort of like maybe an hourly position. Right. Um, so it, it has to be everyone's duty. And I think that that's where sort of um, why certain initiatives or things haven't been as effective because it's just on the back of the DNI practitioner. It's not an organization. It's not built into organizational values. It's not built into how we do things within this organization. So um, I think that that's one thing to be able to keep in mind that, you know, it is truly the task of everyone. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, a, a tons yeah. to unpack there. And I love what you're basically also saying that like that D-E-I-B role is a role of a facilitator, like facilitating conversations, holding space for people to express themselves, express their personal experience, um, even express the, cause it's, it's mucky to go through. Like it's mucky to admit that you are like, as a white person, <laughs> racist, <laughs> Like it's like nobody really wants to admit that. And like people will be like, no, I didn't do it and this and that. And, you know, even having a safe space to like process people getting defensive or people getting like really um, avoidant of the work, however we do it. And I'm, I keep thinking about therapy too. Like you said, you know, it, it would be so unethical to like open up a wound in therapy, let's say, and just be like, okay, I'll see you in two weeks with like no tools, no wrapped like – wrapping anything up, you know, no like coalescing of the energetic, like, uh, you know, kind of fusing the energy back together, right? And like, okay, we're going to like revisit this in two weeks after we do some work winding down, right? Like imagine how, yeah, I can't imagine how shitty that feels to be like, I just bared my soul and like simply nothing came of it. A hundred percent. And, you know, that <laughs> that's, First of all, like when we talk about things like white privilege and racism and sexism, like these aren't just things that like we're, 
these are things that like this country is like foundationally built on. Like, (laughs) and I think, you know, this isn't the first time that we're experiencing it in professionalism. Like this has been going on for decades for, you know what I'm saying? And so to, to think, you know, that, you know, these kinds of things aren't happening in an organization is just ludicrous, one. And two, you know, if our country is built on these sort of, you know, horrible discriminatory practices, seeing how they sort of have weaved their ways into sort of professionalism through process, systems, through people, mm-hmm. um, you know, we have to be able to acknowledge that, right? Like, how has a process or a system like hiring how is it inherent, inherently discriminatory, right? Like, how are some of these HR policies like inherently discriminatory, right? Like, there has to be someone who is looking at these policies, procedures with a specific lens to be able to make them equitable, right? I used to always, like, right now, I'm, I'm in a space where even, like, um, if I'm looking for a job or whatever it may be, like, there are just certain things that I'm not negotiating on that I have in the past. Um, Like what? Like I, like I, I firmly believe that like this sort of quote unquote idea of dressing professional is built on like white ideologies. One million percent. (laughs) One million percent. Like wearing, wearing a suit, having your hair a certain way, like those are things that like I, at this point in my life, I'm not willing to compromise because so much of who I am as a woman, as a black woman is expressed through how I dress, um, you know, how I accessorize, how it's part of how I show up to the job. And if that is hindered or stifled in any way, I'm not going to do the job a hundred percent the way that I could. So I, I learned that very quickly about myself to say, you know, how you dress, Brittany, is actually really important to how you do the work. It's part of you. It's part of your identity. When I wear this, it, it when I wear this, it makes me feel X, so I'm able to do X, Y, Z better kind of thing. So I don't want to enter an environment where it's going to stifle parts of my identity. Yes. And, and when you Google, I remember doing putting together something and it was like, showing people how to dress properly for an interview for hourly employees, I think at SoulCycle. And all the stock images are white people, just FYI. I mean, probably not a shocker. And they're <laughs> and they're so like vanilla, you know what I mean? Like it's like, okay, wear this like frumpy, you know, kind of like misshapen uh whatever, just put, get yourself in a suit, right? Yeah. Like your hair needs to be a certain length, your nails. I think the nails part is super, is actually pretty racist. Yeah. Like, but I, it's, and let me tell you, and you know yeah. this, if you know me and you know who I am outside of work, inside of work, my nails is, are just something that I'm not compromising Never. on. So if this makes you uncomfortable, chances are like, I'm not you know, the right person to be able to work in your organization. But like, um, but like why let's, let's dig into like why nails would make anybody feel uncomfortable. Do you know what I mean? I think there are a hundred percent. I think there are elements of, and I'm going to speak specifically from, from me and my identity and who I identify with. I think there are certain elements of black culture um, that are so foreign to people who aren't necessarily in our culture or understand it. And um, those elements make up a lot of who we are, a lot of, you know, where we come from. 
And I think, you know, when we're asked to be able to go into certain professional settings and environment, I feel like there's this identity strip, Mm. right? It's like, if I can strip away the things that you've grown up with, the things that make you you, in order to be able to fit into this culture that is white, that is whiteness, to make myself as a white person in this organization feel more comfortable, I'm going to ask you to do that. So I'm going to ask you to take off your nails. I'm going to ask you to straighten your hair. I'm going to ask you to wear the suit because it's making me more comfortable as a white person. And I'm stripping you of these things Mm -hmm. that ultimately are part of your identity and your your culture. Right. Um, And that make you feel confident. It's about proximity to whiteness, right? Like, the the closer you are and the closer you fit into these ideologies and this system, um, the more it makes me comfortable and I'm not threatened by it, right? Because I don't know it. I don't understand it. Okay. Like it, it's a little threatening. So if I can strip these things away, I can make you fit into the ideology and system that I've built. Instead of, and that this is what, you know, DE and I work will eventually hopefully does is like, instead of doing that, we widen the parameters of what a culture looks like and what oh. how people show up and feel confident can feel really different to every individual. A hundred percent. Yeah. With something as simple as saying uh, you're na- like coming to work with nails, right. like and feeling confident and feeling like I'm accepted in this environment and not feeling like this is going to make me stand out or, or maybe you're standing out for great reasons. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like there are just certain things that I feel like, at, you know, as people enter a professional world that they don't have to compromise, like, and they shouldn't, mm-hmm. and it shouldn't just be on the individual person or employee, but like, it should be built into an employer brand. Yeah. Like I used to always say like, like when organizations talk about values and and they have it up on their website, I'm also I'm like, can you also put underneath the value like how you expect and act that out every day? Yeah, like I would love to see that. Like, right? If you value X, like how does that show up in your daily interaction? Like how I want to be able to see it. Yeah, <laughs> and not just see sort of the value. Like I want to actually be able to see and understand how you think that that value is illustrated every day within your organization and what that looks like. Cause everything is, is word, right? Like the action is, is what's important. And those are usually the companies where not only they're living those values every day, but every employee can even repeat them back and they understand what they are and they're ingrained in them too. That's also makes the job easier for people like you and I, I mean, you are still in the talent role, um, to find those cultural matches to the values that have nothing to do with an external look. A hundred percent, hundred percent. And I've always said like, specifically within the talent function, like I always feel like it's such an important pivotal role within an organization. Like, um, because it truly, like the person who sits in that seat and understands that has a lot of power to be able to bring in people within the organization who they feel can make an impact in many regards, right? 
Um, and I always say, you know, I, so much of the conversation now is, we were talking about this earlier, so much of the conversation now is, you know, driven towards people who are looking for employment. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's spot on. And I definitely think that there's a lane for that. But I also think that there needs to be a conversation for the people who are sitting in those talent positions um, at organizations and really understanding the power that they hold and how they could actually make a really impactful. It's not just hiring. It's not just filling a role. Right. Like it's about how is this person going to impact not only like the discipline that we're searching for, but the overall organization. Right. Um, And I think, you know. Right now, being an executive recruiter, you know, I am interacting with a a number of different um, senior level executives, you know, and hearing sort of more about their organizations and the kind of talent gap that they need to be able to fill. And a lot of the conversation is around human capital Um, and really more in the sense of, you know, well, you know, I need people leaders who know how to manage. I need people who know how to have difficult conversations. I need people who understand, you know, human beings, right? Like it's such a pivotal, crucial point within organizations because we have leaders who understand business, but don't understand people. And I think that teachers, I think that people who are working with youth or specific populations um, uh, and nonprofit are 100% qualified to be able to lead some of these people functions within corporate America. So I'm talking about HR, I'm talking about talent, I'm talking about training and development. Like it is a huge missed opportunity that people aren't looking yeah. at people in nonprofit for these kinds of roles. Yeah. And it I 100% agree with you and I think what I'm also hearing when people say we need people who have already figured out how to do people management. It's also saying, because you and I both know nobody hands you a manual when you start managing people. You have to learn on the fly and hopefully you have some sort of skill set that kicks in and you like it because a lot of people don't and or and also had a leader that impacted or multiple leaders that impacted your management style. When you're first starting out, you're just amalgamating everybody that came before you, you know? And what I'm hearing some of those leaders say is we don't want to train anybody. We expect somebody to have done that already, which I do think, yes, is certainly possible, but without like a wide scale leadership training, which a lot of places do not have, like we don't know what could, they might be great at people managing and everybody in their organization hates working for them. Like we don't know, Mm -hmm. like you don't really know how somebody was trained, what their um, leadership style is, what their philosophy is. I mean, and that's your job, right? To, to suss that out when you're putting somebody up for the role, but like that takes a lot of work. It takes like a hundred percent, which is why I feel like, um, you know, when it comes to the hiring process, I think that it's, I like to lean more on like competency and behavioral interviewing versus sort of the other like traditional, like, you know, very (laughs) interviewing. Um, because you're right. Like, I really believe that, you know, it. I think that leadership and the approach of how you 
manage a team, how you, you know, approach, you know, uh, certain work within the people function or within an organization. I think that that is from experience and like inherent, like I always say like, like I want to hire good people because I can teach them like the skill, right? If you have the skill and you're a shitty person, can I say shitty? Yeah, you Sorry. can. You just, you just did. <laughs> like, if I hire, a, like, I don't want to hire a shitty human being who can do the work. Correct. Like, that is not the game that I'm about. Like, I want to hire a person who I know is great and what they've experienced and show me throughout a process that they are committed to this work, but they might need to, you know, help in maybe sort of managing this yeah. or project managing that, whatever it may a be, polish. right? Like I feel a hundred percent, but I also feel like the, I don't want to train anybody um, is a discriminatory practice and saying within itself, mm-hmm. right? If you think about it, um, the people who have been given ample opportunity who don't need the training, right? Um look very much a certain way because they have, they've had access, Mm -hmm. they've had opportunity, Mm -hmm. right? So they don't need the training versus someone who may not have had the access and opportunity who might fit all of the other things, but they're going to need like some training in these areas, right? Those two populations of people look very, very different. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So saying that I'm not going to train anybody um, is an inherently like discriminatory phrase that I wish people and hiring managers would stop using because you're going to need to train somebody. Totally. And if you don't and you're in, and you want to get the people who are already sitting in these positions, it truly is not helpful way to be able to get diverse talent into, into the pipeline. Totally. I had um, a quick little anecdote. I was going to work for, it was the company I was at right before Orify. It was mm-hmm. awful. And the woman that I worked for and the interview, I had my spidey senses go up and I ignored them because I was just so ready to get out of the position I was in before. Yeah. Side note, don't do that. Just don't take life rafts just to take life rafts because it will end up being more chaotic, most likely than you anticipated. But um, I remember her interviewing me and she said, what if I told you that I only want to interview people from Ivy League schools who have like an MBA or something? And I was like, I would tell you that I'm not that. And I don't know if you want me to be the one speaking to them. And also I have hired hundreds of people and them being from an Ivy League or not has never once qualified them over somebody who didn't go to an Ivy League school. And I would say I would I would probably not even look at that aspect of the resume. So I don't know if it's a great match, but I, again, like I said, accepted the role anyway. <laughs> and I was only there for like three months because it was such, it was such a bad match. Like I don't believe any of those things because I know for sure it doesn't matter. And I'm not knocking if you went to an Ivy League school, like blessings. I love that for you. But I've never once seen somebody get a, like, be better at a role just because of the school that they went to. A hundred percent. And surprisingly, even in 2024, like there are still people who think that way. (laughs) So like like, dinosaur to me, it's like, oh my God, like really dinosaur indeed it. I actually, I feel like this is like my rebellious Aquarius spirit. (laughs) 
and like going against the grain and everything that I do. I wanted to get out. Like I firm, like yeah. I have had conversations with, with managers. I'm like, you know, I, as someone who has not used their college degree and this is no, like I got my experience through experience and not through college. I really firmly believe that college is a way for you to socially integrate and yeah. socially like meet people and you start building your ideologies on like who you are as yeah. a person. And managing like are. managing your time, your workload. A hundred percent. It's a very expensive yeah. like parent kind of I I don't even want yeah. I've and, and it's so funny because I used to be a college advisor and I've had very different changes like huh. ways of thinking. And I also think college is very is positioned very different for communities of color um, than than white people. Um, it being a way of you have to go here. This is your only way to get out of the circumstances and situations financially that you're in. You have to go to college. Like there's no other way. Mm. And what I've appreciated about the last few years with Gen Z and and social media and things of that nature is that people are discovering that they are you know entrepreneurs and can start their own businesses without sort of this college degree, without having to go, you know, hundreds of thousand dollars of debt, right? Like they're, they're making and forging their own path, which I am totally not mad at. And they're doing it debt free, or at least, you know, with minimal debt opposed to people who, you know, have hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt in college. And so I think how college is positioned is very differently. And it's positioned that way in communities of color because of the things that we're talking about right now, right? Like you will not get a job without a college right. degree. Like they won't. You will not get a job. Yeah. Like I can't tell you how many times I heard that growing up. And so it became a thing that I had to do because, oh my gosh, as someone who grew up in poverty, like an impoverished neighbor, like I don't, I, I want to be able to make money. And if this is the only way that I'm going to make money is, is I have to go to college, then that's what I have to do. But now I sort of think that the conversation is sort of shifting about, you know, how can I, you know, forge my own path to success, you know, internally, spiritually, monetarily, like it's going in a different path and direction. And while some may choose college, great, amazing. I do see another path sort of forging for other people, um, which I think is great as well. Yeah. And I totally agree. And I, I am also hopeful for that. I keep thinking about generations. So in astrology, generations are like Pluto is in a sign for like 20-ish years. And if you're born Mm. under that Plutonian sign, you're a part of a generation. And the generations are like, again, pretty much exactly aligned with when Pluto changes sign we change a generation. So you and I are part of the millennial generation, Pluto and Scorpio. Mm -hmm. And most of us have experiences of hardship because we are changing and transforming things from the literally the death. We're like experiencing the death of a lot of um, institutions. Uh, College is a great example of like, "Mm, 
we're in a lot of debt and not totally sure what this taught us. And I guess it gave us some skills, but was it really necessary? But we like went through it kind of the hard way and maybe the last generation that really has to do so. And then that way Gen Z can soar Pluto in Sagittarius. They're very much like the teachers. They are learning from us who went before them, who created a safe environment for them to learn and flourish. And then they get to go forth and conquer zero fucks given. And we love that. We, I mean, not every single one is going to be like, but, but Grace who works for me is Gen Z. She went straight into working for herself and she works for Uh, me. And it's like, I always say, and I've thought about this most recently is, you know, I think sometimes when we think about mentors, we think about people who are older than us, people who have, you know, have like sort of these years of experience. And I do think that there is a lane for that. But I also have been thinking more about mentorship of people who are younger than me, who are actually, who are also successful. Yes. Um, and, it, and I don't think sometimes we think about that in that kind of way. Like we think about mentorship with, you know, someone who's, you know, have, has had a lived experience versus someone who's younger, who is, you know, up and coming and, and it's sort of, you know, very successful within their own right. I have a ton of people, um, young people who are younger than me, who are just doing amazing things that have, um, she calls me her mentor, but her name is Jaya. And she has done amazing things with her platform about, you know, um, speaking more about, you know, people who live in NYCHA housing projects. And she's created a whole platform of being able to see the beauty um, in this in, in this kind of housing and see the beauty in community and family and sticking together and really celebrate. I mean, it's so inspirational. Every time I go to her page, I'm like, inspired. All right, Brittany, what are you going to do? Like, <laughs> and just having, yeah. like, it's, it's, it's that kind of inspiration and mentorship, um, that I think that, you know, a lot of us could, could really benefit from, you know, people who are up and coming and, totally. and getting their foot in the door who might not, you know, be as seasoned, but they're doing the thing. Totally. I love hearing that too, because I agree. Age is just so arbitrary when you really think about, even when you go really down to brass tacks and we go like super spiritual with it and you think, okay, well, like we keep reincarnating and like it actually doesn't matter what your age is and human, you know, because you've lived however many lifetimes and who knows. And I often think about like, you know, the auntie archetype who's like always hanging out with like their their niece. Like I have an auntie that like a favorite auntie that like um, you probably do too. Do you? Do you have a favorite answer? I do. Yeah. Yes, I do. So we all yes. have like the why. I mean, blessings. I, I feel for you if you don't have a favorite auntie, go get one. Um, <laughs> but like she'll ask, you know, they ask the younger one of like, what's cool now? Like, what's hip? What are the kids saying? Like, what should I be watching? What should I, you know, how should I do my hair? Like, that's superficial shit. But I do think it's kind of the same concept of what you're saying, yeah, which is like, ahead. tell me like what I need to be up and up on please a hundred percent like I'm not sure if this is like gonna relate but I'm just gonna say it because I feel compelled to say it in this moment even like watching my mom age and understanding that like she's never had access to the things that like I have now like if that makes sense like her growing up um like she just never had access to like the kind of makeup that I have now like the kind of like opportunities that I have now, like my mom doesn't even understand like 
truly like the the inner workings of like a job. Like it's just so different from her, right? So her looking to me saying, yeah, tell me what's new. Tell me, I want to have a conversation. Like, because this is the first time that she's experiencing this kind of innovation, this kind of technology, like this kind, like, and so it's just very interesting to have that interaction where, you know, I'm telling her innovative things, but I also have two younger people who are telling me innovative things. So it's just so interesting how that um, perspective, um, like happens as you get older, yeah. right? And it, <laughs> and as the years and things change. And it, it's such a beautiful thing. I think if we can open up our mind and not say, you know, that, that age is limiting, you, you're seeing and watching your mom, like, you know, grow in wisdom and beauty and like, you know, her hair is changing and all of those, like what your mom is beautiful, by the way, from what I've seen on social media. (laughs) Um, but she, but, but also having an open mind to say, I could really learn something not only from my elders, but from those who are younger than me. Um, even down to what you were saying before, when you, you were working with the youth and you're like, all right, I'm learning that this generation speaks differently. <laughs> they are blunt. They oh, are telling they me exactly what they want to say. They are making a TikTok 100%. about it, whatever. I mean, a hundred percent. And you learn, and there's a lot of beauty and growth in that because, you know, you know, even when I look at someone like Jaya, who I mentioned earlier, um, there's just a, a fearlessness. Yeah that like that is just so like uh, like it's so admirable like it really is and um that's what i really am respecting about the younger generation is this fearlessness this abruptness that sometimes needs to be checked but it's like i've said it it's in the world not like what's gonna happen kind of thing you know what i'm saying like Whereas I think that, you know, our generation, there were still a lot, I mean, our parents who had already been through things within their life and their generation, right? You can only teach what you know, right? (laughs) And so there are some things that, you know, I was taught that to be very, you know, very, you know, P's and Q's and come and show up like, when really that might not have been who I was. (laughs) Like, you know what I'm saying? And so experiencing, you know, the, the younger generation and, and there are just a number of things that I find very admirable. And I'm like, Hmm, like I could, I could take a page out of that. Totally. (laughs) And like the programming that, yeah, like what you're talking about, just being programmed in a certain way to like behave a certain way because that kept them safe as well. Um, and also controlling Uh, us, you know, I mean, to a certain extent, I'm not saying that about your mom, I'm saying it about mine more, but like, you know, if you see somebody with a personality that you're not sure how it will be received out in the world, your job as a parent is a, uh, to keep them safe. And so to keep them safe might mean to clamp them down a little bit or dim their light. And it's um, all well-meaning, and, I guess, but. But we see a lot of that, like not only like in our personal life, but we see that in professional yeah. day-to-day life, like people who have been within an organization for years and there's this like sort of new talent coming in that is very not like how they're not doing things like how, you know, we've traditionally done things. And I think part of the conversation, and this is very much embedded into, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging is how do we bridge that gap in a way 
that makes sense for the organization and for individuals as well. Um, yeah. The, um, stickiness that an organization goes through, through the experience of getting a lot of fresh talent. I mean, we saw that at Orify. I remember when I got there, the most diverse it was, was that there was a woman leader (laughs) of one of the brands, no shade, but, uh, I was like, um, this is not, that's not diverse. Um, women are not minorities and like, Mm-hmm. Like with all do, we're going to ch- change some shit here. And then I remember a year later, like the company looked really different. You came on board, Very you know, different. it was just, and then you, and then the ripple effects of that, right? But it did get crunchy for people who had gotten used to status quo. I remember, like, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe we need to cut this, but <laughs> do you remember, do you remember like a, f- oh, yeah, like, yeah. like that, like, chef, I do it this way. It, it, it has to be done in this way was like all for diversity. Right. Until we started to challenge him. And then he was like, Absolutely. like exactly. F you. Well, like that's like, that's that. And that, that is a crucial piece to this because everyone is on board until things about who they are and how they, how they've done things is challenged. Yeah. Then it becomes, Oh, like maybe maybe I don't want to do this, right? And so it, it becomes of, you know, I always say, you know, like so much of this work is about like internal reflection. Like it is so about internal reflection and really having to challenge yourself to say, maybe I do think like that. Like maybe I am this person who I thought, who, who I don't even want to claim to be, right? Yeah maybe I am racist. Maybe I am. Maybe I do have some discriminatory practices, right? People aren't taught in life, I think, to have those kinds of reflective moments where it's not so much about praising the things of who you are. It's more so about there are the things that I don't like. Like that kind of internal introspection is like introspective is really hard for people to do, especially those who have privilege in life, right? (laughs) Those who aren't able to really see themselves, maybe the way that other people see them. And so having that kind of interest, having that reflection can be very hard. And I've seen it as a, as a DEI practitioner, be very hard for white men, very hard for white women to say, I'm not this person. Right. You might be, right? Like (laughs) you might, you might, you might be, I think it's also like, it's a deeper there's there's a few different layers to it and one is like innocuous right it's like change management that i feel like that gets thrown around mm-hmm. all the time like what is change management it's literally that so de and i work is a subset of change management like change will have to come after that and so you're like oh yeah what charity can we donate to no actually we have to change everything internally oh shit, that's like the oh shit moment that I feel like people were not like totally ready for. And we have seen, you know, there's been like papers that have come out about all of the people who got those roles when they got them. And I mean, I would love to hear your experience too, if you're comfortable sharing, like, like, were you able to affect change in that role the way that you had hoped to do? You know, um, I'm going to say no. Okay. And... I think that first, 
I would say, you know, I didn't anticipate the amount of emotional labor on myself that I was going to sort of undertake in doing a role like this. Um, I was, I just have been so excited for years to actually like get into this role. I think that I was excited. I was, I wanted to make change and impact, but going through the process of it really was emotional for me. The emotional labor, I just didn't anticipate it being as much as it was. Um, and it put me in a, like a little bit of a depressive state. Like I'm, I'm not going to be, I'm going to be honest about that. Um, because, you know, when you want to be able to see things change and you understand the process of having to, to, to go through of what people need to go through, but yet the, the buy-in was very difficult. The buy-in was very difficult from leaders. Now I do think that you know, there's leaders, there were me, and then there are people in between, right? Mm-hmm. So our managers, our directors. And I think that that population had a little bit more openness to the change. But I firmly believe, like I said, you know, in the beginning, leaders have to have the buy-in as well. Everyone in the organization has to have the buy-in. And for, I also believe that, you know, I think DEI programs need to be funded, they need resources mm. and it wow. shouldn't just be one person. I was a team of one <laughs> and having to be able to also, you know, I had a learning curve as well. You know, I think there's one thing to be able to be really passionate about diversity, equity, inclusion, and, you know, my own experience and lens as a black woman. And then there's another to be able to facilitate this kind of learning. And that there was a, there was a learning curve there for me where I don't think that I necessarily had the resources to be able to set myself up and the organization for success. Um, And the resources come in the form of a team. This is not a one person job, right? There needs to be a team to be able to support the kind of work that needs to go in to diversity, equity, inclusion. And people think, oh, well, it's just employee resource groups. No, we're talking about policy change. We're talking about HR systems change. We're talking about building engagement for employees. We're talking about making sure people feel safe, psychological safe. I mean, all of these things, you know, that is a lot for one person to take on. There needs to be a team to be able to do so. Um, And so I think, you know, those kinds of things, um, you know, didn't necessarily, uh, I just don't think I was set up for success. I think I was well-intentioned. I think that I did do some some great things, but I, I really believe, you know, systems, and policy change is truly the core of DE&I work. Yeah. How an yeah. organization's run from like a system policy standpoint, those are the things that you want to infiltrate and change. Everything else is very much a nice to have. The ERGs, like all of those things are support systems, but changing the infrastructure, the policies, the systems, those are the things that I wanted to affect. And I don't know if I was necessarily successful um, in that. Um, I was going to say something else, but then I forgot. Um, yeah. I Oh, I also think that I have a very, in doing that role, it and, and, and just learning more throughout the last, uh, uh, you know, several years about DE&I work and seeing other practitioners, I have truly like 
have had a radical philosophy about DEI. And it's radical maybe for some other people, but maybe not for me and someone. But I truly believe that if you help Black women, you help everybody else. Say more. And I feel like when you think about professional settings, um, I think that there are certain identities that people hold that always allow them the one up. Whether you are a white woman, you still have the identity of whiteness. Whether you are a black man, you still have the identity of being a man. So there could be like the bros club or the boys club. I think that when you are a black woman, those two identities for me are very much for lack of better words at the end. (laughs) And so I believe that when you help black women um, in professional settings, through policies, through systems, through support groups, through resources, you then and you then in return help all of these other um, marginalized uh, communities as well within within the organization. I know that it is a radical approach to many, but I do do believe um, that that is the way to be very effective about this work. I just got the chills. I feel like that's your platform. <laughs> like that's it. I mean, I really do. It, it makes I, so much really sense do. because you won't. You know what it's like to feel left behind. And so you'll never do that to anybody else when you get the leadership position, when you get the opportunities and the, um, and the doors open for you or the seats at the table, like you will make sure that everybody feels that, that they belong because you know what it feels like not to. A hundred percent. Um, Preach. So th- that that to me is where I feel like my philosophy as a practitioner is like really built in. Um, and I would say I've, I've had that discovery like within the last like year and a half. Um, and I just I, I really do believe that a, a lot of times black women are sort of forgotten in a lot of these, uh, you know, policies and procedures and just in organizations um, in and I think protecting them will in turn protect other other groups. I really do believe that. Um, How can we yeah. protect black women? Like what are the things like if somebody's listening to this and hopefully a lot of leaders are listening to this, yeah. um, what can they start doing right now that will support black women? That is a really, really great question. Um, I think one is, You know, we've talked a lot about this conversation about ushering in people. I think, you know, really giving Black women the opportunity to speak. And I'm talking about like speak candidly and authentically um, and building that psychological safety for them to be able to do so, um, whether that's in, you know, having a one-on-one conversation, uh, whether that's, you know, managing a project, whether that's giving their thoughts on you know, organizational develop, wherever it may be, I think giving them the space to be heard is is very important. But then also understanding that them being heard, that there needs to be action behind what it is. I think a lot of Black women in organizations don't feel supported. They have great ideas, but don't necessarily feel supported by their manager or by the organization. I mean, there's, there's, 
stats on this that Black women are amazing, amazing leaders. Um, and when we think about growth and development within an organization, see where there are opportunities to be able to invest in Black women, right? Like we we spoke about this, um, I think earlier, about, you know, the training, right? If you, you know, if, if you see a gap in someone that you're trained, that you're managing as a Black woman or see potential in somebody, um, there needs to be an investment in them, right? right? Like, and right. not being afraid to invest in someone and their training and helping them sort of get to where they need to be um, or giving people opportunities, right? Saying, hey, I thought of you for this opportunity. Would you like to speak here? Or, hey, I thought of you for this program. Like, it, it just shows that kind of investment that you want them to further their career, that you want to see them sort of elevate. I think that that kind of investment is really important. Um, yeah, I would say like those are the two things, like making sure that we are heard and the things that we say don't just fall on deaf ears. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. and you can do this in the simplest ways, you know, like I used to always say in meetings, and I think we had this at work. I remember, you know, someone speaking and cutting off, you know, somebody and, and cutting off black women in, in, in conversations, even those little things, like those little things are huge things, right? I can tell you how many times I've been cut off by like a white man and I'm just like, okay, well, forget it. Right. Like, but that person then being mindful to say, Oh, I'm sorry, Brittany, I cut you off. What were you saying? Can you please finish? Like those kinds of things, because we're so used and we fall in into this sort of tradition of, okay, well, you just cut me off. It doesn't, you know what I'm saying? Like, those things, and this is what I'm talking about in terms of the psych psychological safety. I don't think Black women will truly reach their potential without all of these other things falling into line. And those are the things that we've spoken about, right? right? Like psychological safety, not cutting someone off, being able to hear them for what they're saying, right? right? Like policies, procedures, all of those things bubble up into Black women being successful within their company and organization. 100% because those little what you're saying has happened over time is little breaks of trust and what you need to do is have little trust building opportunities at all time to create that safe environment it's it's true i cannot speak from the experience as a black woman um but even even watching what you're speaking about because I know what you're speaking about. And like that actually, to your point, deflates everybody in the room, actually. hundred percent. Like if you 100%. build, if you build up, that's the positive element of that. But if you tear down with those micro breaks of trust, um, that also shows for the, the brave woman to have done that, um, it shows that that it's you're not going to be successful when you do that. A hundred percent. And so much, so much of this is about being intentional. Like yeah. you have to be intentional about, you know, your investment in people. You have to be intentional about, especially from a, a male perspective, not cutting off women within in a meeting. Like all of these things take intention, right? Like, and so the intentions to be able to support Black women and, and you know, other communities, um, it, it has to be there, right? It, it just has to be. Yeah. I, do you feel like there are some sea changes? Do you feel like the tide is shifting at all from where you sit? 
you know, I <laughs> reading your facial expressions. I, in your you know, I can say very well. You know what the thing is, Alex. Um, I could say there there has been some change. I'm not gonna, you know, discount the things that have changed, but I'm gonna be honest. You know, the whole immersion of you know diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging from 2020 till now things have fell off. Mm. It very much seemed that movement, at least what we saw from profession, from a professional standpoint, seems to have been very performative. Right. And I do think that there are some people within organizations and certain organizations that have made great strides, but this isn't about impacting like a one-time thing. Like this is about continuous and longevity when it comes to change. Um, and I think from what I have observed is that organizations have made sort of this one-stop shop change on certain things, but there's no investment for the long-term or long, long run. Like we've seen a lot within the, the last year or two, a ton of DE&I jobs be eliminated from companies, a ton. Um, we've seen d and initiatives have been scrapped. There's no more money. There's no more investment because there's no more PR and publicity about it, right? Like it's not in the news like how it was, right? right? And so these things have been eliminated. And so it, it, it leads me to believe like how I was saying in the beginning that a lot of this was performative. <laughs> a lot, you know, a lot of this was not truly about impacting change, but rather you know, making companies look good and, and be a part of the moment. And that is very much the opposite of what diversity, equity, and inclusion is. So, and I'll, and I'll say this too, you know, you know, I work with a lot of executives and they too don't understand the impact of this kind of work. And I'll, you know, and I've said this, you know, earlier in the conversation, so much of this is about business and leaders think about business and they think about money. Yeah. That's what a lot of these organizations think about, but they don't necessarily understand how people are a huge part of growth and revenue. One million percent. And I always say this a hundred percent. I said, you know, if companies invested into the people function of their organization, they would be 100% more successful, 100% more successful. Companies think about operations. They think about the product. They think about all these things that, you know, typically are, you know, money generators, which I totally get. But they don't necessarily relate sort of the investment to people to dollars, which for businessmen could be very important, but they don't look at it that way. Right. And the investment of people truly impacts your organization at every freaking level. Totally. And that is truly what I have been trying to get across to many, many leaders is, you know, when you invest in people, when you give people psychological safety, when you give people engagement, when you give people training and development, all of these other elements and disciplines of your business start to actually thrive. Yeah. Like you can actually see your ROI, but I think it's so foreign to so many leaders about understanding the people function and understanding human capital. They've never done it before. 
They don't even know what it looks like. They get, well, I'll hire somebody to do that. That's very much the notion because I'm over here focused on the numbers and the business when actuality, the people are your business. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's like there's a few different things on that function just from like an energetic level. Like there's this idea mm. that you focus on one element of the business and other elements um, – get impacted. I I take I'll take this to like a personal example. Like when I'm working with people, they'll work on their business, right? And they'll get everything in alignment and f- find success and bring in money and their relationships improve. And you're like, "Well, that those two things don't have anything to do with each other, but they do because you're investing in something that's giving you confidence and therefore you're going into your relationships with an optimistic mm-hmm. viewpoint looking at the benefits of that person and then so on and so forth. Like that momentum can go so far and get like a snowball effect and it can of course we've seen it happen more often unfortunately in the reverse, right? Where we see, okay, well, this isn't generating any income. And so therefore I'm going to scrap it before I see any results of the DE&I belonging work. And so therefore we can't even get any results from it because we haven't ran it for more than a year. Like, what do they think? It's like these things. And we're talking, and I told you about the racism, privilege, all of these things have been around since the beginning of time. And so to think that this living and breathing thing within your organization is going to change within a month, a year is absolutely, we're talking about like so much of this is around policy and procedure and the people who are working to be able to shift these policies and procedures, they also have a mindset. So much of this is about changed mindset, changed behavior, understanding why we can't do this the way that we have been doing. Uh, Like it it sometimes doesn't register. And so a huge part of the work is being able to change the mindset of people, to be able to introduce and have them be open to new concepts, new ideologies of understanding not only people, but how that affects the business. And you're right. You know, a lot of people thought that, you know, we're going to, we're going to solve this thing in a year and we'll be, it's like, actually, no, like it took many, many years for your organization to be this shitty. It's going to take just as many years for it to be able to be equitable, to to be fair, like all of these things. It's like putting a Band-Aid on like two amputated legs. It's like not enough. Yeah, not enough. We're bleeding out here. The other, I I was just thinking like, I feel like people don't want to make change until they can see that it's been profitable in some other example. So I'm thinking like, okay, what companies could we look at that have invested the whole time through in DE&I work? And I feel like it's probably just by very nature of what you said before, it's probably organizations run by black women, potentially black men. Like I was just thinking like, Mm -hmm. wonder what Issa Rae's company looks like. You know what I mean? Like maybe we see Shonda Rhimes, right? Like I think like if you actually look at Shonda's success, she's a really good example, actually, because I think she's been running her show running for at least like 20 years. Grey's Anatomy has mm-hmm. been going for like a million years at this point. So, I mean, I'd be curious. I don't know what it looks like internally. Oprah. Right. I mean, I, I hate to use these like very, you know, they're obviously like juggernauts, yeah. but maybe that'd be helpful. A hundred percent. And And I think that, you know, I think that black owned um, businesses, you know, black women ran businesses 
are 100% thinking about how they can give access and opportunity to people who look like them, 100%. Um, and I think those are great examples. Um, and we saw like an emergence of black owned businesses come forward, but even those businesses within themselves, like, and I'll, and I'll go back to this, like so much, so much of this is about, yes, having our own a hundred percent, but a lot of it is about being able to have other groups be able to understand how they can be a part of this movement and organization as well. So when we think about, you know, other businesses that, you know, have the money power, that have the the team machine power to be able to give access and opportunity to these growing businesses, mm-hmm. right? Um, whether, you know, it's Issa Rae or whether, you know, it's a, you know, a, a business in Harlem, right? How have other organizations and companies that are fully funded, I'm talking about being well-oiled machines, how do they see these other businesses and being collaborative and being able to invest in them and being able to give them more, give them access and opportunity as well? Um, I think is another part of this conversation too. Totally, it's like it's it's like the yes and thing that I feel like Stephanie, right? You know, ingrained in us because of the Danny Meyer connection. But like, okay, yeah, like yes, we invest in a black owned business and we also improve our policy internally. Like, yes. And like, yeah. we don't need to do one or the other. It's like, we need to do both. <laughs> and it's like, hundred percent that <laughs> we need to do both. Exactly. A hundred percent. Um, yeah. And I, I, you know, I, I really, I really do believe in, again, I'll say it again, you know, this sort of funnel for entrepreneurship, I think, I think going through something like being in like uh, sort of this revolution or movement that happened in 2020 around DEI, I think it awoke to, to people, especially like Black people, Black women, is like, hmm, this is something that we actually believe in. And if you're not going to believe in it the way that we do, like we're going to start our own thing to be able to believe in it. And whether that's like, your own business, whether it's, you know, your own production company. I think, you know, we want to see people who look like us doing amazing things and being representative of the communities that we come from. And if, you know, X company isn't going to give us a chance, like we're going to go build it ourselves. And that has been so inspirational to watch. Um, I've even had that moment myself, right? Or <laughs> where I'm like, I'm leaving these companies. I'm starting my own thing, right? Like, because, you know, I think we saw a little bit, like when we come together, like, ooh, this could be a thing. And if you're not going to support it to the level where I think it needs to be supported, great, because now I'm going to go do it myself. And I think that that is too something that came out of the last couple of years where people are like, I don't want to work for this company. Yeah. They're not doing the things that I think are important. So I'm actually going to go over, over here and do it. And I, I think that has been something just very like revolutionary, at least for me to be able to watch and witness. And I love it. Yeah. And I think Black women in entrepreneurship and has been amazing to watch. Um, and it's very, very inspirational. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's 
it's also creative. Like I think when you are in a position where you're like, oh, no, nobody's letting me speak. I mean, your mind, your imagination still runs and it, it's, it's got to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so like, and also to your point before of, um, this is just true and energetic work, just to, to confirm what you're saying, like the overcompensation that we've done towards empowering like white people has been like, I mean, it feels like since the dawn of time, but like definitely since colonialism. Right. And like, right. so you, so you expect like, okay, 2020 happens. We're like, Hey, all this shit's really fucked up. And you expect that in what it's been three years uh, realistically since that time frame, and everything mm-hmm. will have changed from decades and decades and decades, centuries even of like power imbalance. Like, of course not. Of course not. And it's like even crazy to it's even crazier to 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 say that because a lot of these companies, a lot of these um, initiatives were funded by the very people who were empowered for so many years, and for them to be like, no, it needs to happen in like this very small timeline is like in it of itself inequitable. A hundred percent crazy. Like really when you break that down, it's it's like, what? It's literally crazy. And it's so unrealistic. And these are the kinds of things that businesses got themselves into, like, because they, they, it's performative. If you truly knew, I understood the depth of, I mean, it's just so much encom- like encompassing of a DEI. Um, I don't even I don't even like the word initiative. Like literally, like embedding it into a company. Right. Um, I mean, it's it's going to take years. Again, we're talking about, and I always said this before. You know, I, I remember having a conversation with someone in Orify where I said, you know, um, who we are when we walk into like these four walls, whether you're like a mean person, whether you're racist, whether you hate women, those things don't dissipate when we walk into these four walls. They're going to show up some way, somehow throughout your experience working here, right? How they show up, I, I don't know, but they will show up. And it's those kinds of changed behaviors and mindsets that take years to change. Like yeah. we're talking again, behavior, mindset, policy, start like all of these are, are intertwined together. And those are the things that we're trying to change, um, which is why I just don't understand why companies do not invest in people, in the human capital function around like trainings, around groups, around, you know, um, team collaboration, organ- like those kinds of things that I think are really important um, because without it, like everyone, it's just not, the work is just not going to get done effectively. Like yeah. it's just not. Right. So you're starting your company around this. Yeah. <laughs> I think that it needs to I, I really, really want to, I, I, I really like, even this conversation has helped me like, and I told you this before, you know, in our own like conversation before is like when I think about the things that really like charge me where I feel like, Oh my God, that it, that ignited something in my spirit. It is around diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, and it's around sort of this blend of um, that and the talent function. I really want to like reimagine 
what hiring and talent can look like within all organizations, not just the ones that I'm working with, like, but like it being like a global process of change and understanding, you know, the different industries, understanding the people who work in these different industries, how they can, you know, cross collaborate. Like I just imagine like, um, I don't know, just a more cohesive, inclusive, like network of process and system of how we introduce people into organizations, how we retain them in organizations, mm-hmm. how we engage them and it not being so like sterile and like, like yeah. corporate, but it having a real human connection. Yeah. Like we're dealing with humans, people like, you know, yes. like, <laughs> like there has to be some sort of human connection. And I think we've lost that um, in, 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 in the process of, you know, hiring and recruiting, um, which is why I want to talk to a lot of those leaders who sit at the helm of the function and who really have an important role and perspective. And I want to be able to widen what that looks like for them. I love the word reimagine. Yes, I do too. I'm like, it's really, I'm like, it has been like the word for me in the last like three years is like reimagining like what we, traditionally have looked at been conditioned to think like reimagining all of these things because I think we're in the space where we can do so like and we should feel empowered to do so is to reimagine the systems and you know the things that we have been conditioned to think and do and really sort of take a check to be like is this aligning because it might not be like maybe there can be a different way to do this that is better. <laughs> there and and I mean you're arguing that there absolutely is and I'm kind of getting like these flashes as you're talking. Okay, so hear me out. Like maybe you are a consultant for brands and like almost like creative brands. Like I'm thinking about like agencies and like you know, these companies that have offices that are like so fucking cool or like Google and you're like walking in and you're like a consultant with an executive and like helping them. Like it's not a DE&I function that you're working with. You're working with like the executives to like impart DE&I and belonging like w- into whatever into or the brand yeah. or the products yeah. or like, yeah. Yeah, like you're looking at the core I, values and you're like actually like – well, like what we were talking about before, like, do you embody these? And this word is inherently like exclusionary or, you know, like, can we like use a different word for this or like that kind of work? I think you, I think I see it. I see it too. And and first, and I, you know, for so long I have, and we've spoken about this too, where I feel like, you know, I am meant to be in a creative realm in industry. And for a very long time, I have been trying to figure out what does that look like for me? And I think sometimes when we think about creativity, it looks a certain way because that's what we see on social media or TikTok. It looks through the way of fashion, through art, through maybe marketing and advertising, through these traditional sort of funnels. And I have been trying to think about how can I hone my creativity and the the discipline that I'm very committed and passionate about, which is sort of change management within an organization, um, talent function. How do all of these things that I'm really passionate about and love 
bubble up into my creativity. And so I've really been trying to sort of hone and figure out what that looks like for me. Um, I don't think it's going to be through these traditional realms of like art or, you know, um, could be fashion. I don't know. I've been told I, but you could be I look nice sometimes. You but do. I could, like, you know, but like, right. Yeah, but like you could be working with a fashion brand as this consultant. And yeah. that's like the bridge into, into, yes. Because you're creatively like, working the, in your function and they're creative human beings that understand that that's what's going to need to happen. 100%. Yeah. And there's so many ways creatively to think about these functions within a business. Like it doesn't have to be like this very, you know. Stodgy. Mm, 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 yeah. A hundred percent. Like utilize the creativity, the creative genius to be able to like reimagine what these things could look like to really make your organization more fun, more inclusive. Like, all, you know what I'm saying? Like all of these things. So I think that that is sort of the, the, the. Yes the lane that I'm headed in. And this conversation has helped me. Okay. So get your price sheet ready. Like we can talk about that offline. Cause I actually think after this conversation, people are just going to like reach out and hire you. And then it'll just be like an easy bridge. And you're like, Oh, I just simply can't do my other job anymore. I'm doing this other job. Um, doing this other I'm thing. doing this other thing. I'm running my own company. I'm running my own consultancy and I'm just I'm just too busy. Like I'm too busy affecting change. Books and busy. I'm booked. I'm busy. I'm reimagining. I'm booked. I'm busy. Do you think? Do you think calling it B Rock like works? You know what's so? Everyone has said you got to do something with this name. Like it's you can't go through the next you know, half of your life without like not doing anything with this name. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I definitely want to incorporate the name. People are like, is Brittany Rock really your name? I'm like, yes, it is. Yeah. They're like, wow, that's really cool. Um, so I want to, I, I definitely want to be able to utilize the name. It could be B-Rock. You're right. It could be B-Rock with like B, like B-E rock. Or you could just play with like rock, like pass me the rock or like, I mean, you could, that would be kind of fun to like riff on rock. Yes. So many thoughts. I'm like really so honestly I'm like it's cool because there's a part of um intuitive work which is like clairvoyancy which is basically like mm -hmm. seeing getting foresight and like kind of getting glimpses right like that so Raven is kind of a silly example but like when she would get visions like that's it can be like that sometimes not you know, whatever that's made for TV, right, but you, right. no, you, you've felt that probably you've seen, Oh, you're good at that. I'm, Anybody who's visually I'm creative is clairvoyant. Like, but I'm getting the vision as you're talking and it's like, I'm sure you're getting it too. And I think that's like another just confirmation that you're on the right path for sure. Yeah. And I also believe in, I'm sure, I mean, you felt this too, especially, yeah. you know, when you started your own business, like, there have been things that I've thought about in the last 10 years that haven't left my mind or spirit. And I feel like if those, these reoccurring things, images, feelings that I have and envision for myself, like, it's like, you got to start executing it now. Cause if they haven't, I firmly believe if you have had these visions and feelings for a number of years, it means that you're supposed to be doing it. 
I really, really believe that. Like, that's why they haven't left. There are certain things that come to your mind and they leave, but there are these recurrent things and feelings that you always feel. And and it's like, because you're supposed to be doing it. Yeah. That's like your soul trying to get through to you. hundred percent. Yeah. And it's, uh, but it, it, but I do understand like it, it, and given all the things that you just were so open and vulnerable about, I mean, like it hasn't always been the safest place to explore that and you have felt not felt ready to take that on and you know you're kind of given environments that you have taken that function on and not been able to really see and bring it to fruition because of all the reasons we listed before I can see why you'd be like well maybe that means I'm not supposed to do it but it's just like you're just supposed to be doing it with different organizations A hundred percent. And something that I would like urge Black women, but other sort of marginalized groups to really sort of invest in is so much of my spirit was broken down in a nine to five job. And that's throughout my, throughout my career. I would really like urge Black women and women and other marginalized groups to really find a source of of energy that is not in your nine to five. Um, You can feel at many times very broken down, not validated, not heard, and it can play with who you think you are, right? It can make you feel like, well, maybe I'm not shit. Well, maybe I don't do this, or maybe I'm not good at that, or maybe I'm not. When actually you, you are, but there are these other sort of things that we discussed throughout this conversation that are now impacting how you look and think about yourself. I would urge you to find what your external sources of love, of validation, of spirituality are, and really invest in those things um, to ensure that when you leave a job that might not be, you know, really sort of treating you well, when you leave your nine to five, that you are leaving to something that is pouring into you. Mm -hmm. So that is something that I really had to discover throughout my professional career because I would leave feeling like, well, damn, Brady, maybe you're not smart. Maybe you can't do this. And I had to really go looking for these other things that made me feel whole and validated. I mean, preach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. It's just so, it's yeah. so good. Like, it's so good. I really, you're a, pro- this projector persona. I mean, I've always known this about you, but just to know that like, you're really supposed to be doing what you're doing right the second, you know, and like that it's not falling on deaf ears. Like you have so much to say. And I think giving uh, an hour and a half is obviously not enough time, but like the, you know, like you have so much to say because you haven't had an opportunity or a platform to say it on for so yeah, long. There we go, right? <laughs> like I, I remember right. thinking about like when chemo, um, my friend got on social media and it like blew up. It was like this, there's something called like a, a uh, let's call it like a universal cue. I think about this as like, okay, there's all these blessings, right? All those like soul conversations, you know, bubbling up to the surface, right? Mm-hmm getting into the, the, the queue, but you, for whatever reason are blocked, like 
and then as soon as that dam opens up, the floodgates and the abundance and everything comes more than you could ever imagine that's even happening now. And I know you do well, right? More and more and more like just is just going to like fucking rush through the gates because it's been backed up for so long. And that's like your voice, you know, like you, you know, speaking out, like having this, like any platform, having like your own platform, working with brands, like that whole Mm -hmm. thing has just been building up for so long that once you open the doors, like if you build it, they will come. It's like the floodgates will just be like so abundant. I, you know, I needed to hear that because, you know, it's a scary thing to... It's scary, but then it's also interesting to think of, think about how you want to do something so eagerly and like, you know, you may be good at it, but like there's this other sort of security life that you've, again, have been conditioned to think that, okay, this is sort of like your only way of doing things, but being pulled, it's like a magnetic pull. I mean, it doesn't matter what organization I was working at. I've always had this magnetic pull of doing something that was like larger than the organization that like, it was just like, Mm -hmm. like I'm here for a larger reason. Like I've always had that magnetic pull to something, but haven't necessarily like leaned in to, you know, coming together with it. Right. Like it's something always pulling me back kind of thing. So yeah. Yeah, Cause once, cause I think once you get that magnet like in total alignment it's gonna be like let's fucking go it's gonna be like (laughs) like okay we're like doing this and like you're on like a real trajectory that um yeah it's 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 happening I'm so like pumped for you and I like I feel like it's also one of those situations where like you have to be ready and it just feels like Maybe now it's it's coalesced enough where and you feel like, okay, I'm gonna do this. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that everything that I've experienced up until this point, like it's preparing me for something larger that I feel like I am on like the cusp of really, really being ready for and all of the good and all of the bad and all of the the things that I've gone through, like those were just literal stepping stones for me to get to like this point in my life. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed, please consider subscribing and or writing a review on the platform you listened on. And if you know someone who would really benefit from this episode, please share. All resources discussed will land in the show notes along with our socials. And until next time, talk soon.